Before we get into the sermon and before I read the uh, psalm that I want to read you, I want to ask you something. Um, was Abraham saved? Yes. He was. You th everybody here would agree he's probably a saved guy, right? Yeah. And that comes from where? 15.6. Genesis 15.6. Abraham looked up at the stars and uh, uh, God, he, God told him, thus shall your descendants be. And uh, Abraham believed and he says, you know, he credited him for righteousness. I know I kind of blew that quote wise, but that's the uh, premise there. Now, if he was saved and today we're getting into the law of Moses, right? Can you get more saved? Is it possible to get more saved? No. So obviously the law is not given in order to get you saved. That has nothing to do with getting you saved because it was counted to him for righteousness long before the giving of the law, 430 years before the giving of the law, according to uh, Paul in the book of Galatians. All right, the law is given for an entirely different reason. And I'd like to say this right now for people that watch this. The law, in uh, uh, it's in Hebrews, and if you can't find these verses on your own, email me and I will uh, get them. The law uh, in uh, Hebrews 7, it's somewhere 14 or 18, somewhere around there. It says that the law is annulled. It says in chapter uh, 8 that the law is obsolete. And uh, in chapter 10, it says that the law is set aside. That means the law, the law of Moses, it is all-encompassing. The law is over. Paul says in Colossians 2.14 that the law is nailed to the cross. Okay? If there is a precept that we're going to go over today, such as murder and it's in the law, it is set aside in Christ, and we are obligated to it only if it is repeated in the New Testament after the crucifixion of Christ, which it is. So we are not to murder people, okay? Plus, it comes before the law anyway. But we go by the New Testament. We go by the grace of Christ, and when we commit an infraction of his law, we will not lose our salvation. You can never become unsaved. If somebody teaches you that, it is not possible. Okay, there is nothing in the Bible to suggest that you can lose your salvation. There are things in the Bible, as we talked about before class, that say that you can never get saved, right? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but once again, that has to be in proper context. But if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, through belief, and you lose that, that doesn't say very much about the guarantee, as it's called a guarantee. It doesn't say very much about God's guarantee. You are saved forever. Once saved, always saved. If you don't like that doctrine, don't email me and complain to me about it. Email me and show me where in Scripture that's wrong. And I will guarantee in advance of me giving this sermon and receiving your email that you have taken the verse out of context. You have misapplied that particular verse. So I'm saying that now. Uh, it will be included in the video. This is for the people on the video's sake, not so much yours because we all have talked about this already today. But uh, Abraham was saved prior to the law. David uh, in the Psalms says that blessed is the man who uh, the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's during the time of the law, all right? And the law couldn't save anything. We prove that by the law itself because the law had a provision called the Day of Atonement. You don't need a Day of Atonement if you can be saved through the law. So pay attention to today's sermon. It's a very important sermon on the Ten Commandments, and uh, we'll go through half of them today, and I hope that you will enjoy this Great stuff on doctrine, great stuff on the work of Jesus Christ for you, all right, because of what he did. Now, let me read you a psalm really quickly, and uh, we're going to read the uh, 90th psalm, Psalm 90. This is the beginning of Book 4 of the Psalter, Psalm 90, which, by the way, is also the oldest psalm in the Bible. Who wrote it? Psalm 90? 
Moses, oldest psalm in the Bible, and uh, Peter picks up on verse 4, and he requotes it in 2 Peter 3, 8. Um, so there you go. So it's a very important psalm. It's the oldest psalm in the Bible. It's the only one written by Moses, and it's right from the heart of God. Lord, you have been uh, our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like, a yesterday, like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sheep. I'm sorry, like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, and in the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. So we got some really fortunate people here in the Bible, right? Um, let's see here. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you... So is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our sermon today is going to be Exodus 20. It's verses 1 through 12. It's entitled, Ten Not-So-Simple Commands, Part 1. All right, so we're going to start in uh, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Last week we saw the terrifying sight that Israel beheld as the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. The land quaked, the fire burned, and there was smoke like a furnace billowing to the heavens. All of it pictured not just glory, but also wrath. 
the Lord was about to give his law, and with it came a demonstration of the greatest of wrath. Today, we will begin to see why. Ten simple commands, yes, seemingly so, but in reality, the truth is no, no, no. Who can look at this terrifying body of law and say, I have lived these perfectly? Only a fool would contemplate them carefully and then say, yep, I've done it. I deserve a seat next to God in heaven. He owes me big time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation of yourself and the giving of this law. Thank you for the lesson it teaches us. Thank you for bringing us to an understanding of how it points to the work of Jesus and how glorious that work is that we could never attain to on our own, but he could and he did to relieve us from this body of law. Thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that I cannot believe the son of my father and the son of my mother sitting here allowed to preach on the Ten Commandments. It is the greatest honor of my life today, and I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you and I praise you for it. And I do so in the name of the exalted Redeemer of mankind, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our text verse for today comes from Leviticus 18. It's the fifth verse. It is a verse which Paul uses in the New Testament to show us that the law cannot save anything. It says there, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, that's a big word, isn't it? If he shall live by them, I am the Lord. How many of us have children here? Did any of you have to teach them to do wrong? Can anyone here say honestly and with a straight face, my son or daughter has never told a lie? How about this? My son or daughter has never done anything to upset me. Anyone? If you answered one or both of those questions in the positive, I would question your truthfulness. And if you didn't, do you think your parents would have answered any differently? No, certainly not. The law has its purpose, but it is not to show us how good we are. Let's get that straight right now. We'll go over the reasons for the giving of the law again today, which we looked at last week. And it'll be a good reminder for us as we try to grasp the magnitude of the laws that we are to contemplate and reflect on. There is a lesson in the giving of the law, and it is revealed slowly and methodically in the pages of God's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the first three commandments. It's verses one through seven. Verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, chapter 20 begins with a verse of preparation. As happens from time to time, the words are offset as a single verse and don't include anything of what's said. They simply tell us that something was said. The eager anticipation for our ears is, what did God speak? It is of note that God was mentioned three times in chapter 19, and all three times a definite article was used, Ha Elohim, or the God. However, chapter 20 begins with the assumption that the one speaking is the one and only God by leaving off the article. It simply says, Elohim spoke. This harkens back to the creator of Genesis 1, verse 1. Later in verses 20 and 21, the article will again be included, but until then it will be left off each time. The coming commandments are known to us as the Ten Commandments. However, in Hebrew, they're called Asheret HaDevarim, or the Ten Words. Other names will be given for them when they're referred to in the Old Testament as well, such as the Tablets of the Covenant, 
the two tablets, and so on. In the New Testament, they will be referred to simply as the commandments. In this chapter, we are told that it is Yehovah who speaks the words of the law. However, three times in the New Testament, in Acts, Galatians, and Hebrews, it speaks of the law being given through angels, plural. There are two things to consider on this. First, in Acts 7, 38, Stephen says that the angel spoke to them on Mount Sinai, and the word is singular. Thus, it refers to the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the word for angel does not necessarily mean a heavenly being. It simply means messenger. The word angel was used when Jacob sent his servants to meet Esau on the way home. Okay, they were called angels or malach, messengers. When they are referring to the law in those passages, it is speaking of the entire law, including the Ten Commandments. Verse 19 will explain the giving of the law. Moses will be the mediator between the people and the Lord as he receives it. Further, verse 24 of the previous chapter says that Aaron was with him. Thus, they are both considered messengers of God for the giving of the law to Israel, even if Aaron wasn't with Moses at all times. This then explains the words of the New Testament where the law was administered through angels or messengers. It is speaking of Jesus, Moses, and Aaron. Verse 2, I am the Lord, Anochi Yehovah. These words are the first words of the Ten Commandments from the mouth of the Lord. In them, they identify that he is Yehovah, the self-existent creator of all things. To more fully understand what the name Yehovah encompasses, you can go back and watch the sermon on Exodus 3, verse 14, where we spent the whole sermon talking about it. Suffice it to say that he is the one and only true God, and yet despite that, he is not the only God. This is evidenced quite clearly in the next words. Verse 2, continuing, Your God, Elohecha. Yehovah asserts the right to call himself your God to the people of Israel. They had agreed with their own mouths to receive him as such in the previous chapter. Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Though he is the creator of all things and the Lord of all in reality, he does not push himself upon either Israel or the people of the world. Even today, there are many gods in the world, but there is only one true God. Based on the words of their agreement, he now establishes his right to exclusivity over Israel with the words, Anochi Yehovah Elohecha, I am Yehovah your God. Note, though, that this is an individual address to each person. It is singular. It is not an address to the nation collectively. The singular is intended for all individually. From this moment on, he has claimed title and authority over each person of Israel. They now have a God, and he now has a peculiar people reserved for himself. Verse 2 continues, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? The Lord claims the right to be their God, not because he created them, but because he redeemed them. It was he who brought Israel out of Egypt. They were in bondage, and he delivered them from that bondage. This is actually rather interesting because the Lord gave Adam a direct command in the Garden of Eden, which was based on him being creator. Here's what it says in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And as a little squiggle for your brain, that is the wor first words ever recorded as the Lord speaking to man, right there. In the garden, he gave the law as the creator. And so the question arises as to why he didn't do that again for Israel. The answer is that man is in bondage to another and he belongs to him. This is found all the way towards the end of the Bible in 1 John chapter 3, where it says this, he who sins is of the devil. Now, before I go on, has everybody here admitted that they sinned? Okay. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. All belong to the devil unless redeemed by God. He redeemed Israel out of Egypt, and therefore he appeals to them as their redeemer, not their creator. His commands, then, are based on a hope of a loving respect from his people and not out of fear. Adam's command was given out of fear. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. However, in the Ten Commandments, there is no note of penalty for disobedience as if they were slaves. Instead, they are given as an appeal to conscience as to free men. This does not mean that penalties won't be forthcoming for the law. The well-being of the entire nation necessitated statutes and penalties for disobedience. But these were not to be the basis of obedience for the true Israelite. For such a person, it was based on love for his Redeemer. However, there is the truth which was seen in the last chapter. In verse 18, we read this. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The symbolism given, as I explained at that time, is of wrath and condemnation, not of salvation. What was implied is that the law that was being introduced could not bring about salvation. Even the true Israelite who loved God's law could never fully meet the strict standards of that law. None could meet them perfectly. Were it not for the provision within the law itself for an annual day of atonement, the law would only bring wrath and condemnation to any and to all who attempted to live by it. Thus, the display was messianic in nature. The wrath of God would be poured out on the one and only one who could ever fulfill this law the one who embodied it through keeping it. Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this brings us to one more point before we look at these 10 magnificent laws. As all men are bound under sin and thus are of the devil, and only God can redeem them from their sin then it follows logically that Jesus must be God. That's correct. Jesus' appeal to his people, like the appeal here in the giving of the Ten Commandments, is based on redemption, not on creation. We are saved by a Savior, and we are redeemed by a Redeemer. As this is so, then Jesus must be the one true God. And how so many people miss this and either reinsert the law, which I see perpetually people trying to do, or they defer back to Jehovah like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, or they do a mixture of both. They insert it into their theology. It is simply unimaginable. 
Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. If the law was given to Israel, who had been redeemed from the house of bondage, and as they were given the law based on that redemption, then why would those who had been given this law still need to be redeemed from the law? The answer is given in the last sermon, and which I will now repeat. Pay attention. There are four major reasons for the giving of the law. First, to show us God's perfect standard. Is anybody here God? No. Okay. Two, to show us that no person could meet that standard. All are unqualified without God's grace and mercy being bestowed. Three, to show us how utterly sinful sin is to God. And four, to show us of our need for something else. That grace, which can only come by someone fulfilling this law on our behalf. And as only God can do that, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man into the world to do so. It is the grace which we simply cannot do without. And so we begin with the first of God's Ten Commandments. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The first word, the command begins with an absolute negation, the word lo or no. The majority of the commandments come in this negative form, stating the prohibition which they then explain. The reason for this is that they presuppose the existence of sin and evil desires in the human heart. In other words, the commands, like the one given to Adam, point to our limitations. Adam lacked the knowledge of good and evil. We lack the ability to properly exercise the knowledge of good and evil, which we now possess. The laws then are given to us because of this. This is well explained by Paul in Romans chapter 3. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. In its entirety, the first command reads, Lo yeyeh lecha Elohim acharim al paneah. No, you shall have to you God's other before my face. The verb is singular, but the word other is plural. What this infers is that it isn't speaking of just other gods, meaning deity, but other gods of any kind, such as idols and thoughts, words, or deeds. If a person were to make an idol of work, it would be a violation of this command. I used to do that with my life. That's all I thought about was working seven days a week from sunrise to sunset and everywhere in between. I loved to work and it was my idol. If a person makes an idol of their intelligence, like Stephen Hawking's, it would be a violation of this command. If a person makes an idol of his personal strength, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? It would be a violation of this command. Anything that we place alongside the Lord would be a violation of this command. A person that says, I am righteous before God and makes an idol of his righteousness, which is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees, is an idol. You have now replaced God with yourself. Adam Clark defines the sense of this first word. He said, this commandment prohibits every species of mental idolatry and all inordinate attachment to earthly and sensible things. As God is the fountain of happiness and no intelligent creature can be happy but through him, 
Whoever seeks happiness in the creature is necessarily an idolater. As he puts the creature in the place of the creator, expecting that from the gratification of his passions in the use or abuse of earthly things, which is to be found in God alone. The very first commandment of the whole series is divinely calculated to prevent man's misery and promote his happiness by taking taking him off from all false dependence and leading him to God himself, the fountain of all good. However, although this may be the intent, if we were to stop with this first word and go no further, we can see how clearly it brings wrath. No person can say that they have fully kept this one precept without breaking it. And I would go so far as to say that no person could claim that they did it for even 10 minutes of their life. But that's besides the point. No person can say that they have done it. Nobody. Not only are we not good because of our inclinations, we are not good because of our actions. Each of us has set up an idol in our heart in one form or another during our lives. We have failed by attempting to find another source of joy instead of seeking the Lord. This law can never bring salvation. It can only bring condemnation. And as James says towards the end of the Bible, James 3.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. The entire law is broken by one infraction. From this very first word, we are guilty of the law because we have broken this one point. How terrible is this law upon the hearts and souls of men, and yet how many stubbornly cling to it and claim that they stand guiltless before God. I will tell you that I have a very close Jewish friend, and he attends a synagogue right down the road in that direction a little bit. Paul and I have breakfast with him once in a while, I think two or three times, and he is so proud of his rabbi because his rabbi has perfectly fulfilled, according to him, all 613 of the laws of the Torah. Imagine that. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem, so he can't fulfill them. They don't, the sacrifices are included in that. On and I could go on all day with the things that this guy has violated every single day of his life. But he's so proud of his rabbi, who has fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. His righteousness, guess what, is greater than God. Imagine how sad that person is going to be when he stands before God and sees that he hasn't even met the first of the Ten Commandments, much less the other 612 commandments. Each individual of Israel agreed to this command, and thus each person as well as the nation as a whole violated it when they strayed from it. The words of both personal and national violation of this law are many in the Bible, but Jeremiah chapter 2 gives a very good example of Israel's failure to meet this law. Here's what it says, Jeremiah 2 verse 28, but where are your gods that you have made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Concerning this first command, something else was needed. The first word only condemns, it cannot save. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything. The second word, the first command asserted the unity of God in Israel's worship. The second command is intended to ensure that the first command is adhered to in a physical sense. Jehovah showed them no form of himself and therefore no form was to be assigned to him in worship. Further, No form was to be worshipped as a God other than him either. As he is the creator, then all else is created. Therefore, to worship any part of the physical creation was to worship less than the creator. 
This command then shows what is to be considered unlawful worship. It also introduces two new words into scripture. The first is pesel. It means an idol or an image, and it comes from pasal, which means to cut or to hew into shape. The second is temuna, which means likeness or form. These words combine, and they thus signify any physical idol or image. The command says, lo ta'ase lecha, no make for yourself. There is an important point to consider here. The Bible does not forbid the making of shaped things, such as the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. It prohibits shaped things for personal use as an idol, and it will go further to explain this in the next verse. And the reason I say this is because people who challenge the Bible, and people love to challenge everything in the Bible, will say that the making of the things for the tabernacle is a violation of this very commandment. Oh, how confused God is. This is not the case. Bible deniers get a demerit for misevaluating this first command or this, this second command. Verse 4 continues, that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. These words here form a triple division of the sphere of man's existence in the material universe. It is thus an all-encompassing statement concerning it, and it prohibits against making anything resembling anything, whatever it is that exists in it. This goes from the sun, the moon, and the stars to the birds which fly in the sky. It goes from plant and animal life on earth to fish in the sea or to any other part of the created order. Nothing in creation is to be likened to God, nor is anything in creation to be likened as a God. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. This further defines what was stated in the words, you shall not make for yourself. If one makes an image for himself, the intent is then that this image is to be bowed down to and served. This is forbidden. It needs to be noted here that the Roman Catholic version of the Ten Commandments leaves this command out completely, and they do so without any scriptural support at all, none. In order to maintain Ten Commandments, they divide the Tenth Command into two separate commands. Adam Clark rightly sums up this matter. This corruption of the word of God by the Roman Catholic Church stamps it as a false and heretical church with the deepest brand of ever-during infamy. Though the law is set aside in Christ, it is still a part of God's word. To manipulate it such as they have done is, and I mean this sincerely, the most damnable of offenses. Israel, likewise, was guilty of violating this command throughout their entire history. In fact, they openly sought to violate it. But the Lord told them that they would suffer because of it. In Ezekiel 20, it says this, What you have in mind shall never be when you say we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries serving wood and stone. And that's because of the words of their own mouth in chapter 19. We will do everything that the Lord has said. And so he said, you have no right and you shall never be like that. And if you do, you will be judged by me. Verse 5 continues, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Here the Lord claims that he is a jealous God. The word is kana. This doesn't indicate jealousy of success in another. He's very happy when all of you are successful at what you do. Rather, it speaks of a defense of his honor and his glory. When one bows to another God, the Lord isn't jealous of that stupid false God receiving worship. His jealousy is directed to the violation of depriving him what he is justly due. His words in Isaiah show the thought quite well. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved 
images. This is the first use of the word kana as an adjective in the Bible. It's only going to be used six times, always in connection with the Lord, and only in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Verse 5 going on. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This verse here, although scorned by those who hate the God of the Bible as showing a vindictive nature, is intended to show us the consequences which naturally result from misdeed. It shows nothing vindictive in the Lord. Rather, it shows what is just. Adam sinned, and his sin continues to trouble us 6,000 years later. When a person is punished for stealing, he may lose his estate and his earnings. That certainly causes the next generation and even many generations later to receive the sentence of the offender. The very person who dismisses God for being vindictive may go out and sue another person for wrongdoing against them. If they do, then they will actually visit the wrongdoing of the one that they sue on the subsequent generations in exactly the manner described here. To argue against God who is infinitely just and righteous concerning his judgments is an incredibly small-minded thing to do for a person who lacks any true wisdom or knowledge at all. Verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The thousands here is not speaking of the number of people, but the number of generations. It is specifically defined that way in Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. The length of this mercy or loving kindness is for those individuals who love him and keep his commandments. It doesn't mean the children who don't, but the individuals who do. If a generation is conservatively said to be 40 years, then this would mean 40,000 years. As the Bible speaks of only a 7,000 year plan for the world that we currently enjoy, then the term here is obviously meant to symbolize forever or eternity. This is demonstrated in the words of the 103rd Psalm. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. However, as none are able to meet this standard perfectly, then none can be granted such eternal mercy apart from Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf. All those who came before Christ and trusted the Lord's provision are covered by his future mercy. Only those who trust in Christ after his advent will be covered by his present mercy. Did you get that, Linda? Okay. She asked that question before our uh, sermon today, and so there's the answer right there. It was this mercy of the Lord which called for Christ to fulfill the law for fallen man. Israel, individually and as a whole, is shown throughout the entire Old Testament to fall short of this second command, even very quickly. Right after the giving of this command, the entire congregation violated it. Here's what it says in Exodus 32. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Concerning this second command, something else was needed. The second word only condemns. It cannot save. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The third word. The Hebrew here is ambiguous, and it can be taken to mean either forbidding false swearing only, 
or to include profane or vain swearing. If we look to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, it appears that false swearing is what is being referred to. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. The word for vain in Hebrew is shav, and it is used here for the first time in the Bible. It means falsely, lying, vain, etc. The intent of this command is that one should never invoke the name of the Lord in a false manner. And should they presume to do so, verse 7 does continue, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who, can, who takes his name in vain. This doesn't mean that there will be immediate punishment on the offender. Rather, it is something that may come in this life as if a perjured man is found and then punished, or it may be in the day of God's judgment in the future. Malachi shows us this. Malachi 3.5, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Of the first three commandments, Lang wisely notes this. He says, the sin against the first commandment banishes the name of Jehovah by means of idle names. The sin of the second obscures it and disfigures it. The sin against this third one abuses it. Abusing God's name is something that is forbidden. A transgression of this command is a violation of the entire law. And yet, the Bible demonstrates that Israel as a whole, individually and collectively violated it. Here's what it says from Jeremiah chapter 5. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Seek now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there's anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Concerning this third command, something else was needed. The third word only condemns. It cannot save. Are you starting to get a feeling about the Old Testament, the law is given, and then the rest of the Old Testament, as I said in those four precepts, is to show us that nobody can do this. Israel is being used as a picture of each one of us. This is my law, this is my standard, this is my people, and they can't do it. Why would we expect that we could either? Just three commands so far and already no hope. Even from the first one, I was done in for sure. I used to think I was pretty great, but I see I'm just a dope. Compared to God's standard, I am certainly impure. I tremble to think of my guilt, how it weighs me down. I fear to face God on my own deeds for righteousness. I once thought God would smile at me, but no, it will be a frown. I bear such heavy guilt. My God, I am such a mess. Oh, but then I heard of Jesus, sweet Jesus. He lived the life that I never, ever could live. And he gave it up for sinners like me, yes, for all of us. In exchange for my sin, my sin, his perfect life he did give. Oh, what a savior, what a friend he is to me. Oh, my Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who set me free. Our second thought today is the fourth and fifth commandments. It's verses eight through 12. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The fourth word. This command differs from the others because it begins with the word zahor or remember. They were given the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 16 at the time of the giving of the manna, and now they are told to remember it forever, keeping it holy. This means that they were to separate the day from all others and observe it as unique and as a special day consecrated to the Lord. 
The word Shabbat implies rest and cessation from labor. This cessation of labor for Israel looked forward to a different type of rest. It was to be a foretaste of the blessed eternal rest which man lost. Man was created outside of the Garden of Eden, and he was rested in the Garden to worship and to serve his God. This was lost. Everything from that point on has looked forward to the restoration of that day, and it finally arrived when Christ came. Through his work, the seventh day of rest is offered to all of God's people. This is why Hebrews 4, after the fulfillment of the law by Christ, says this, Hebrews 4, 3, I say this week after week, remember this verse, for we who have believed do enter that rest. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is actually an imperative. Therefore, the week is divided into two sections, active work and active cessation from work. Man was not to be idle when he should be working, and man was not to be working when he should be at rest. Things that needed to be done were to be done before the Sabbath so that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. This, however, is not to be taken as a command that one must work every day. If so, for example, it would violate the mandated feasts of the Lord, which Israel celebrated down in Jerusalem. Rather, what should be done was to be done, but not on the Sabbath. Verse 10, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. This translation following the King James Version is confusing and should rather read, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Otherwise, it seems like the Lord is even now working six days and taking off his seventh day. Rather, they were to work and then rest to the Lord, honoring him on this special day dedicated to him. Verse 10 continues, in it you shall do no work. The commands are specific. The individual whom the Lord is speaking directly to is not to work on the Sabbath the word you is singular. Verse 10 continues, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor were they to work their children, as if lesser in the house were somehow exempt from the requirement, or that the work of the stronger should now devolve to the weaker. Verse 10 continues, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. Likewise, the servants, both male and female, who bore the majority of the burdens in the house during the week, were to be given rest. The unattended labors of the owner were not to devolve to another, even in one's employ. Verse 10 continues, nor your cattle. What is implied if an animal is put to work? Someone working the animal. Rest is to be rest. Even if someone were to hook up an animal to a grinding mill and give him a pat on the bottom to get to work, he would have to work in order to do so, and he would continue profiting from the labors of the animal. The Sabbath was made for man as a day to the Lord God. If he was thinking about the profit he was making while that cow was going around grinding grain, then he wouldn't be thinking about the things of God. Also, these words show that the animal who is a servant of man was to be given a break from its labors. The Bible is replete with God's care for the creatures of the earth. In the sparing of Nineveh from destruction, the mention of many cattle along with the people is noted. After the flood, it says that God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. Time and time again, care for the animals in the Bible is noted. Even the bird that falls to the ground from the air does not go unnoticed by God. Verse 10 continues, nor your stranger who is within your gates. The stranger within the gates implies someone 
not of Israel, who has taken up permanent residence within a town. This prohibition was certainly given so that they wouldn't become a snare to Israel. If they saw strangers profiting and gaining advantage because they could work while others couldn't, it would become a problem for all, wouldn't it? This exact scenario was found in Nehemiah chapter 13, where it says this, Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do this? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to get dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not open the, be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. The creation of the heavens and the earth was done in a specific way and for a specific reason. It was first to foreshadow the Sabbath day for man on the seventh day. God could have simply created everything at once, but he did it in a set way to picture something else. And the six days of the week followed by a Sabbath was ordained in order to show the redemptive pattern of history itself. The six days of the week prefigure the 6,000 years of man working toward the reign of Christ, followed by the final thousand years of the millennium where Christ reigns, a time of rest on earth. The Bible assumes that the reader will accept at face value a literal six-day creation. Though many views of creation have arisen in the past 150 years, it has always been the assumption of the text itself that God really created, and he really did it in just six days, and he did it for the patterns which the creation only points to. Also, the reason for the giving of the Sabbath here in Exodus is not the same as that of the Ten Commandments recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5 about the giving of the Sabbath. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The first is based on creation in Exodus 20. The second is based on redemption in Deuteronomy 5. And yet, the two are tied together. Israel was already redeemed at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Therefore, as a sign of God's rest, following his creative efforts, which had subsequently been lost in the Garden of Eden, the redeemed of Israel were given the Sabbath day. Thus, there is no contradiction between Exodus and Deuteronomy. One act leads to another. The fallen world could not be redeemed unless it had first been created. Everything is looking forward to God's rest, a rest which can only be found in Jesus Christ. As the law could only bring a curse, then the Sabbath was only a shadow looking forward to Christ's fulfillment of it. Now, with his having fulfilled the law, we do enter that rest of God. The words of Jesus, of Paul, and the author of Hebrews all agree that our true rest is found in Christ and in him alone. The Sabbath was only given as a picture of what was to come. However, it was given. Would Israel obey? 
The answer is no. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 20. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man doesn't, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. Concerning this fourth command, something else was needed. The fourth word only condemns, it cannot save. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. This is one that I got perfectly. Mom and dad are both here today. They, they know that I got this one just spot. Okay, maybe not. The fifth word, the Ten Commandments are divided up by scholars in several ways. Some see them logically dividing between commands one through four and then five through ten. The first four showing love for God, the last six showing love for neighbor. Others divide them one through five and six through ten. This would then show a distinction between the filial and the fraternal matters. The first five show obedience to the parent as children, the latter respect for others. As parents are the image of God to the child until the child can reason out who God is, then this second division does make more sense. It should be noted that the father is placed first here, but the mother is placed first in Leviticus 19 verse 3 when also speaking of the mandated Sabbath. This shows that both are to be regarded with a like respect, even if there is a hierarchy within the home. The honoring of the parents is reflective of the honoring of our true Heavenly Father. If one is disobedient to their parents, it goes hand in hand that they will be disrespectful to the Lord, won't they? And as Paul notes in Ephesians chapter 6, this is the first command with a promise. Our verse finishes today with verse 12, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Some look at this as a national blessing for Israel that if they were honoring of their parents, they would be nationally blessed with the land of Israel. This is incorrect. First, the word land here is not the usual term for the land of Israel, which is Eretz. Instead, it is Adama, where the name Adam comes from. Adam was taken from the Adama. Adama signifies the ground. Whatever ground the people possessed, they would possess it more fully if they were honoring of their parents. Second, the command is spoken in the singular to the individual, not in the plural to the collective whole. And third, both Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, and Ephesians 6, verse 2, explain this verse with words that indicate long life. In essence, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This is a general statement that one will prosper through the honoring of parents. The world of man in which we live is governed by general rules of God, not by laws which are universal. Not everybody that honors their parent is going to live a long time, and not everybody that dishonors their parent is going to die immediately. These are general laws. The promised blessing is one that is therefore generally to be expected, but not universally received. Despite being a simple command and one which is almost universally accepted as right, Israel failed to keep it. Both Old Testament and New shows their failure to honor their parents. From Ezekiel 22, we read this. In you, they have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. In you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Concerning this fifth command, something else was needed. The fifth word only condemns. It cannot save. Today, we have looked at the first five commandments, and each shows that something else was needed. Each word only condemns. Should we stop here? 
close the Bible and await our destruction? Should we say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die? From trusting the law, the answer would be yes. The law cannot save anything. The law can't save doodly squat. It can only show us our utter depravity before an infinitely holy God. But the giving of the law is also here for another reason. It is for a messianic picture. It shows us that God loves us enough to pour out his wrath on his own son who did fulfill the law in order to pay the sin debt that you and I bear. Let this law and those who lived and failed under it be a tutor to you. Let it be a learning experience. In the law, there is condemnation, condemnation for you and me for all. And in the cross of Christ, there is also condemnation, condemnation of sin. Paul says that what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, meaning our flesh, you and me, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Thank God for Jesus. If you have never received God's forgiveness through Christ, it's high time you do. You don't know your last moment, and this law, this law that we're looking at right now is waiting. It's anxiously waiting to condemn you. Be freed from the law through the blood of Christ. Call on him today. Call on him. Ask him to forgive you of the sins that you have heaped up so very high. Let God cast them as far as the east is from the west. Please do it today. Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 10. It is verses 5 through 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them, which was our text verse today. It was Leviticus 18, whatever, 15, I think. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Great stuff, isn't it? Amazing, amazing what God has done for us. You and me, all of us have done these terrible, wicked things and we don't even think they're that bad, some of them. But Look at it from God's perspective. These are the big 10, and we failed all five of the first five, and we've failed them many times in our life. It's unbelievable. Next week is Exodus 20, 13 through 17. Several more terrifying demands levied upon me and you. It's entitled 10 Not-So-Simple Commands, Part 2. That'll be our 55th Exodus sermon. And as I say each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean, and this law is, I mean, a very deep ocean, lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it right on dry ground. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is called Not So Simple Commands, Part 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, these are the words he was relaying. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Five of ten commands so simple and yet impossible to meet. They only bring us a greater consciousness of sin. With them as our hope, there is only defeat. Breaking even one is said to do us in. Oh, impossible law, where can I go from you? Who will from this body of death free me? To Jesus Christ I will go. It is what I will do. The law is a tutor to lead me to him and in him I am set free. By this law I have a consciousness of sin, how utterly sinful sin is, by it I can clearly see. By this law I am utterly defeated, I am done in, but by faith in Jesus he has set me free. Thank you, Lord God, for the giving of your Son. Thank you that you have broken off the yoke and set me free. By faith alone I am saved, through his cross it is done. Now I can live for you, but when I fail, you have already forgiven me. Thank you for the perfect life of my Lord who fulfilled every detail of your perfect word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Amen. What an absolutely exciting passage, wasn't it? I, I tell you what, it, I just remember thinking before I started taking, how am I ever going to do a sermon on the Ten Commandments? How is that even going to happen? And then I started realizing... How am I not going to be able to finish this in one sermon? I had to break it into two. It is so amazing. What a precious word he has given us. Because in the end, it points to Christ. If it was just about these, why would I even want to do it? It's just a mirror right in my face. I'm typing it and I'm actually like feeling scared. I'm thinking, you know, it's just, oh. But all through it I'm thinking, thank God for Jesus. Oh my goodness. If you do these things, you shall live by them. Uh, Amazing. Amazing. That law necessitated this observance. Everybody got that? You all understand that? If you don't, come and we'll talk about it. That law necessitated what we're doing right now. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these marvelous words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now think about it. That guy down the road thinks he's fulfilled God's perfect law, all 613 commandments perfectly. And what does it say here? He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner? I would not want to come to this table thinking that I have received this by any other way than through the shed blood of Christ. If you're coming here thinking you have any righteousness in yourself at all, please don't come forward. Don't mock God like that. Instead, before you come up, just talk to him about your weak past, your failings, your pastor's many failings. Say a prayer for me. And then come up and receive what he has given to us through his body and blood. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your time. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Oh, Lord God, you know every heart in here, and there are some that are heavy over sicknesses, or trials, or difficulties. You know everything that's going on in our minds and in our lives, and the distractions we have, which pull us away from you as well. You know all these things. We ask that you just search us out purify us and make us right and acceptable in your eyes and take care of the needs of those people who have them and those that we love. And we lift all of these up to you because you're great and you're glorious and you are certainly merciful. How wonderful you are. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.